0: Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's Private Equity Practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast, where we explore the trends impacting private equity today. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's Private Equity Practice, and I'm based in New York City. Joining me today is Mike Hoffman, who's a partner at Toma Bravo. Today, we're going to talk about trends in the software deal space and how Mike partners with his portfolio companies to drive value. So just a quick reminder to our listeners that the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. So welcome, Mike. Toma Bravo is an extremely important relationship to BDO, and I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy calendar to join me today.
1: Absolutely. I'm uh, I'm really happy to be here, and I'm a big fan of the podcast format as somebody who runs often, and your podcast in particular. I've enjoyed many episodes.
0: Fantastic. Jumping in, you joined Toma Bravo in 2014 and have since focused on growing and building the firm's infrastructure software practice within the flagship team. So it would be great if you could kick things off with a bit about your firm, your team, and your specific software focus.
1: I joined, as you, as you mentioned, about a decade ago, and it's been a great ride. I've been really fortunate that the firm has had fantastic success, the software space, and the pace of change um, in the the role that we can play in helping management teams maximize the potential of their companies and, and themselves has, has been great too. And as you mentioned, so I sit in our flagship fund, Toma Bravo, uh, we're a multi-fund strategy. When I joined, we were a single fund, which was a control buyout fund that focused on software and we were exclusively software. And we've launched other strategies, which are in the in the lower mid-market and mid-market Um we also have a, a minority growth platform, a credit platform, and I've remained in our flagship fund, which has gone from being a mid-market focused fund to now it's a large cap fund. I focus all my time in infrastructure and security. So the way that we delineate the world is we have applications which are often verticalized, but not always. They can be horizontal in nature. And then we also have infrastructure and security, and most infrastructure companies do a bit of security, and, and most security companies do a bit of infrastructure, so it's a bit of a mix. And for us, infrastructure, is it's not bridges and tunnels. You you probably surmise that. It's, uh, it's kind of the IT part of the world that are very horizontal in nature, but um, maybe, maybe a little bit more technical, and that's where I spend my time.
0: So digging in a, a little bit more on the firm background, Tomo Bravo has... Pretty unique roots in the lower middle market. Uh, maybe you can talk about that history and and how it impacts uh, the business today.
1: Yeah. So so our our background precedes me. Some of you may be familiar with a another great private equity firm named named GTCR, and the T and the C in that spun out and, and formed uh, Toma Cressy and that became Toma Cressy Bravo over time. Um, especially as we leaned into software. And Orlando really helped spearhead that effort along with uh, many of our other partners here. And then that became Toma Bravo as as the Cressy part of that spun off and focused on mid-market um, healthcare deals. But through that, th- the focus of the fund, as you go back to our kind of origins, was in the mid-market. And that's where we focused. That's where we started. And if you think about these software businesses that we invest into, the really interesting thing is... We have grown up as they've grown up. Um, you know, you look at many of the software companies that are really big today, fantastic, you know, brand names, and you go back to the size that they were, uh, you know, maybe 20 years ago, uh, and, and you look at Toma Bravo's, the scale of businesses we invested in then, there's a pretty similar journey um, of becoming bigger over time as you as you learn more, get more muscle memory and things of the like. Our roots is definitely in the lower mid-market, although we now span all different sizes. And, you know, I think that lower mid-market mentality, I think it's important to say what that means for us. So we've always been very scrappy and proactive when it comes to deal origination. Uh, obviously, as an investment professional, you you you, you got to create opportunity. And the way that we staff our deal teams is um, we have... Obviously, you know, I focus on infrastructure and security, but uh, all my other colleagues focus on other parts of the the landscape, either based on size segmentation or vertical. And we just go really deep there. And we uh, are really proactive about creating deal opportunity in those areas. I think the other thing is we're really management centric. Um, Not all private equity firms are, Uh, you know, ultimately it's a people-based business. But what I mean by that is when we're looking at evaluating opportunities, we A heavy part of that evaluation is the the people in those businesses and finding entrepreneurs and business operators that we can partner with because nobody knows an end market and nobody knows a specific business better than the people who are in those roles today. And so the role that we really play is to help those operators transform their businesses and bring all the experiences we have to light. And then to think really big about underwriting transition and transformation and ultimately taking risk, but doing it in a way that is perhaps not as risky as one may think. Um, Because when people think transformation, they probably think there's risk with that. I think we've done a really nice job of of helping them through that. And the last thing I'd say is bootstrapping is a big part of what we do as well. And um, we're in the business of buying great, great products, working with great management teams and turning them into just fantastic, um, you know, underwritable businesses. And, and part of that is kind of through a bootstrapping mentality. Um, and, and you know, I think we've had good success as a result of it.
0: Well, I'd like to set the stage for our uh, our conversation in terms of, of how you see the landscape changing. Uh, I think we know software is a unique asset class, but what are some of the secular tailwinds that are helping
1: feed growth in the space? So with respect to just the product market fit, or if you want to call it kind of supply demand of selling software and then and then customers ultimately buying it. The name of the game is, is digital transformation. So if you think within a business, any business in any end market, but there's all these different workflows, you know, people-based things that occur that can really be aided by technology and, and oftentimes just completely rethought. And so uh, that can go from paper-based tasks to things that were simply digitized to things that, um, you know, have really end-to-end been rethought through. And that digital transformation um, is something that, in every single function of a business, can really help businesses just be more efficient, better, you know, stewards to their end customers, and also drive, you know, heavy heavy savings at the end of the day so that companies, instead of investing into very manual things, can invest into the things that are most important to their businesses. I think another big trend is just in general, you see an IT and security skills gap occurring. Highly skilled people that are out there to do some of the highly technical things that need to occur in IT and security. And so, you know, a great way to to solve that again is through automation and software. AI is something that we have seen play a critical role in every software business we've invested into uh, since I've been investing over the last uh, decade in software. I think there's obviously an enhancement nowadays with generative AI and the accessibility of those platforms and how they kind of really democratize the the way you use it as a consumer. I think we've all probably played around with uh, some of the models that are on there um, in, in writing an and getting a response. But I think that's going to be really big in terms of making these software platforms ultimately accessible to everybody else. Uh, the, the other aspect of this is, is supply-demand from an investment side. So these software businesses are highly recurring. They are highly strategic, right, because they're driving digital transformation. And just the fundamentals of this business are great. They're mostly recurring. They collect revenue or, you know, billings from customers in advance of of recognizing revenue. So you have really good working capital dynamics. They're not capital intensive, high renewal rates. So you end up seeing a lot of demand um, into buying into software businesses for for all those kind of fundamental reasons as an investor as well. And we're starting to see that where you see a lot of general private equity firms, but but also non-software Strategics acquire into software because it's high growth and they like the business fundamentals.
0: You hit on a lot of great uh, tailwinds there. So I guess moving on, after several busy years of acquisitions, uh, many firms have been turning their focus to value creation with integrations and portfolio company optimization top of mind. And Mike, as you said, if you if you've listened to you know the past few podcasts. This is certainly a, a recurring theme. So in the uh, in the current environment, uh, how have your acquisition and
1: value creation uh, strategies evolved, if at all? It's interesting. So we're constantly evolving the way that we create value. Uh, we're always adding to that, right? With different experiences and different sets of operators. I think we learn from every acquisition. So we're, we're very fluid in that way. But the core fundamentals of how we view that that hasn't changed at all, um, but we've been remarkably consistent. And I would say that the market valued things that, for a very uh, specific period of time, you know, valued growth at all costs—a bit counter to the way we viewed um, creating value. And don't get me wrong, growth is really important, but not not growth at all costs. I don't think any any uh, you know investor uh, kind of fundamentally believes that. Um, we believe in in consistent, profitable growth. And I don't think growth and profits are ultimately um, opposed to one another. Um, I, I think having a disciplined business actually gets you to, to better outcomes. Um, and so for us, this has really kind of brought the market back to, I think, where we really focus at the end of the day. And Historically, um, over the last couple of years, you know, having discussions with operators on, hey, if you, if we can work with you on remaining to be a remarkably consistent business and growing, but also get cash flow levels up, it'll be good for these following reasons. And we talk about consolidating markets. Um, we would talk a lot about exiting on a cash flow multiple as opposed to being susceptible to a revenue multiple. I think we've all seen how that's played out in the public markets. So that hasn't been good. And And people kind of got it. Now people really get it. <laughs> right it's It's really uh, y- you know you, you don't have to do a lot of explaining. Um, they really, really understand. and and you show market multiple charts of what's happened to unprofitable or break even public software businesses and what's happened to their revenue multiples They've gotten absolutely crushed. But you show businesses that trade on cash flow. And they've been remarkably durable when it comes to evaluation, um, and and they, they have afforded themselves the ability to do M and A and other things some of these other businesses haven't. So, I'd say our our playbook and and the um, you know perception of it and people leaning in has has has, has been great, especially as things have have uh, reversed themselves over the last 18, 24 months. Yeah, well, I think
0: consistent uh, profitable growth is a uh, is a great takeaway for the uh for the listeners so obviously add-on deals play a, a big role in the buy and build strategy uh maybe you can talk about how uh flagship uh takes a look at add-ons
1: yeah it look it's a big part of what we do um right. and we have done uh we've done a ton of software acquisitions um each each one of our platforms typically does, you know, about a about a half dozen. And look, we have some that do less than that, and 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 some that do a lot more. As we uh, in our flagship fund, because we staff in a verticalized manner, that allows the deal teams from the partner level all the way down to a associate to go really deep in those sectors. And really get to know them intimately and get to know the intermediaries, um, but really get to know those businesses at the end of the day, and the trends, and the entrepreneurs. And the great part of that staffing model um, in our flagship fund, it allows us to, to really pass opportunities between the different funds. And I can't tell you the number of opportunities where... We've looked at it, and it could potentially be a, uh, an add-on to a portfolio company or a platform in, in one of our other funds, and it's really fluid because at the end of the day, one of those opportunities, if it if it's just highly strategic, and you have a seller who um, you know is comfortable selling to a strategic, uh, you, you know, it'll land in in one of our 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 platforms, irrespective of whether it's it's in flagship or in one of our other funds. But there's plenty of other times when you know, we'll approach something, and it and it doesn't end up being a perfect fit for a platform. Or maybe you have a seller who does doesn't want to sell to a strategic yet. Um, they want to keep it going and bring in a, a partner. And I, I think there's there's you know no better partner than us in helping entrepreneurs build businesses. And that becomes a great opportunity for you know one of our one of our other funds, our Explore Fund or Discover Fund. Or I'd say it's really fluid. And having these different funds is great because we. We, we don't miss pockets of the market where we say, hey, we don't play here. It's no, we play right. here. We play in every single, um, you know, deal construct and opportunity. It's just a, a different set of people at Toma Bravo. And, and, you know, most of us have worked together for the last decade plus.
0: Before we leave the, this topic, I think it might be helpful for the listeners to understand how uh, measurement comes into play. You know, what, what KPIs are you measuring uh, in your pursuit of
1: profitable growth? Because we have so many portfolio companies that we've invested into, we've codified a lot of metrics. And I think a lot of people, show me the metrics on this, show me the metrics on that. Those are really important. I think generally people understand what those need to be, but I think it's having alignment on um, how you calculate things. Is probably the simplest way. So you, you're not arguing over how the score is kept. You're just talking about what the score says. And then, more importantly, you're looking at at um, you know deviations or or changes in things, and then using that to to operationally change businesses. And that's that's what the best operators do at the end of the day. But in the software space, I mean you you start with uh, you start with the the top line of the business, and if it's uh, most businesses today are virtually all recurring, and you'll look at uh, the gross retention rates of the business is, is probably one of the most important things we stare at. Um, so for those who are not in software, that would be looking at your recurring um, revenue from uh, twelve a period before, so maybe 12 months uh, ago, and then looking at how much of that exists uh, 12 months later, so today. Um, and that would be a combination of customers leaving your platform plus um, maybe reducing the scope of their purchasing. But then there's another thing called net retention, which is uh, how much you get back from that same customer set because they they buy more. Um, and then, you know, you have a new layer uh, going in that contributes to your total growth of your business. But then, you know, you start to move into how efficient they are on sales and marketing. So we like to look at sales and marketing dollars relative to a um, amount of recurring revenue that you'd bring in. So, for every dollar of recurring revenue that you bring in, how much does it cost you to do? Uh, you actually see a lot of, uh, I guess, variance in that at the end of the day. And um, and look, all of our businesses were really focused on the cash flow uh, levels of those. I'd say within um, within the first kind of three to six months of ownership, but ultimately at owning. And um, one of the heuristics and our part of the market. People use this rule of uh, 40 metric. I'm not sure 40 is the right number, candidly. Uh, most of our businesses operate kind of rule of 50 of rule of 60. Um, so that would be taking the growth rate of the business plus the cash flow margin and adding them together. Um, again, it's kind of a cute heuristic, but uh, it, it it helps kind of normalize, right? Some businesses are, are growing extremely rapidly. And if you're paying for customer acquisition, it doesn't flow through your profit levels yet. So... Um, Again, that's another one that I, I, we don't use to operate our businesses, but um, I think it's a good output of all the hard work that we put into things.
0: Every time as I, I go through these episodes, I, I know there's a, there's a question or two where our listeners are taking copious notes and you did share quite a bit there. So I do appreciate that. So uh, we've seen several high profile take private deals, especially earlier this year. Uh, care to share your thoughts on the topic?
1: Look, take privates are a great avenue for, um, uh, you know, deal generation for us, you know, particularly as we start to look at uh, the flagship fund where I spend time, these are generally larger opportunities. So, uh, you know, they they often are in the in the public world. I think the valuation markets or the public markets is where they're valuing assets. They've changed a lot over the last couple of years, but you've seen some steadying out and I think when you have markets that are, you know, perhaps not changing as rapidly as they were before, that that aligns seller and buyer expectations, um, less of a bid-ask spread. And I think that's where you're seeing a bit of, a bit of that kind of um, deal generation of the public markets occurring where it's kind of bounced back. Relative right. to 12 months ago, there wasn't a lot out there. People have pointed to the debt markets as part of that. I'm going to um, caution folks that uh, in, in the software space, your loan-to-value percentage uh, is often less than 50%. So debt's important, but it's not the mm-hmm. same as um, perhaps the leveraged buyout model. Many of us kind of learned uh, early parts in our career when when it was you know maybe a, a 70% loan-to-value. Um The other thing is, I I think when you talk about the public markets, it's it's tough to do that without talking about the private markets. And I think you're still seeing not as much deal activity because some of these bid ask spreads, um, you know, seller and buyer alignment are are just a little bit more misaligned um, and maybe not as clear. Because in you know for 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 public companies where you have a board with a fiduciary responsibility and you have a you have a market, I think it's a little bit kind of clearer. In the private markets, it's it's perhaps a little bit a little bit less.
0: All right. Well, I'm anxious to get to uh, my remaining questions, but I'm going to hit a brief pause on our conversation and turn it over to today's Coffee Break guest. That's my colleague, Hank Galligan. Hank is going to dive in further on the current state of the SaaS market and the key private equity tech trends we are watching. Take it away, Hank.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Coffee Break of our regularly scheduled PE Perspectives podcast. My name is Hank Galligan, and I am the leader of the tech industry here at BDO. In today's Coffee Break, we'll be discussing the current state of the SaaS market and key private equity trends in the tech industry. So grab your favorite cup of coffee, and let's dive in. In a recent BDO analysis of the SaaS market, the first ever that we have done, and it's titled SaaS Market Brief, we believe there may be signs of potential comebacks starting in late 2023 or early 2024. While we learned that SaaS market experienced a slowdown in revenue growth and R&D spending in both 22 and continuing in 23, we also saw early signs of more accessible funding sources and the reopening of deal making, including the opening of the IPO window. We believe this may indicate a potential market shift ahead. We all know that general economic conditions play a significant role in the SaaS market. And as private equity investors, you know all too well how crucial factors such as inflation and interest rates are to deals and valuations. Our analysis suggests that inflation is slowing and interest rates are stabilizing. This would bolster SaaS revenue growth and lower acquisition and carrying cost, providing potential opportunities for increased returns on a SaaS investment. Technological innovation is another key driver of revenue growth and profitability in the SaaS industry. Our analysis highlights the importance of leveraging emerging technologies like generative AI to gain a competitive advantage and drive revenue growth in the coming years. As private equity investors, you know it's essential to assess the company's technological capabilities and innovation strategies when evaluating potential investment targets. Now let's shift our focus to another insightful report based upon our recent survey of 114 private equity fund managers that invest in technology as well as other industries. The report, which will be titled Top 6 Private Equity Trends Impacting Tech Companies, emphasizes the challenges faced by the tech industry and PE trends that tech leaders need to know. There is an expectation of increased asset prices in the next six months. This could present more deal opportunities, but it's important to carefully evaluate valuations to ensure investment returns align with expectations. As you know, thorough due diligence and comprehensive understanding of market demand and growth potential are crucial in assessing asset valuations. Cost management is another significant trend impacting tech companies. Our survey shows that assessing a company's cost management strategies and its potential for suitable profitability are important to PE investors. Tech companies that effectively control costs and optimize their operations can achieve higher profitability and create value for investors. Evaluating companies' cost structure, efficiency measures, and scalability is essential in identifying attractive investment opportunities. Talent management remains a top concern in the tech industry. Evaluating a company's talent management strategies and the potential impact on long-term growth and success was cited as a top concern for our survey respondents. Companies that prioritize attracting and retaining top talent can drive innovation, enhance operational efficiency, and gain a competitive advantage. Assessing a company's talent acquisition, development, and retention practices is essential in evaluating its growth potential. Risk exposure during due diligence is also a significant trend to consider. As market conditions improve, deal times are expected to shorten. Our survey respondents stated that they were preparing to conduct thorough due diligence while being mindful of the evolving risk landscape in these shortened timeframes. They note that assessing a company's risk management practices, regulatory compliance, and potential legal liabilities is crucial in mitigating risk and ensuring a successful investment. Survey respondents also noted the resurgence of special purpose acquisition companies, SPACs, is another trend impacting tech companies. While SPACs are making at least a short-term comeback, it's important to carefully evaluate their long-term viability in the related regulatory landscape. Assessing a SPAC's track record, management team, and alignment with investment objectives is crucial in making informed investment decisions. Lastly, survey respondents noted environmental, social, and governance ESG considerations are crucial in deal-making. Private equity investors should evaluate a company's ESG practices and their potential impact on long-term value creation. Companies that prioritize ESG factors can enhance their reputation, attract socially conscious investors, and mitigate potential risks. So as you take a break and enjoy your cup of coffee, remember you can visit our website to read these two reports in detail, which will help you stay informed about current state of the SaaS market and key private equity trends shaping the tech industry. We hope these insights help you in making your informed investment decision in identifying attractive opportunities in an ever-evolving tech landscape.
0: Thanks, Hank. That dovetails nicely with where our conversation is headed next. Which is a focus on the talent challenges impacting private equity. So back to you, Mike. Uh, talent continues to be a top concern for fund managers across sectors, and I imagine especially those operating in the tech sector. Has has talent management been a priority issue uh, for your portfolio companies this this past year?
1: Talent's everything. Uh, it is. <laughs> it is everything. So let me answer it a couple different ways. Um, yes. I'm going to expand it beyond portfolio companies. I, I mean talents our number one thing here at Toma Bravo. Uh, we have benefited very heavily from um our our partnership and in and you know all, all many levels of the organization. People have worked here for a while and having that domain expertise, having people know that they have careers where they can advance, I mean we have we really do a good job of giving young people. A lot of responsibility, and seeing them succeed and grow into roles. I think we we've uh, just Orlando and the rest of the managing partners have done such a fantastic job of that. That I I think that's our biggest asset, and and I think you know our for a organization that's now our size. If you look at the kind of retention rates or you know lack of attrition, I I really think that's that's one of the core things that sets us apart, and uh, that's that's one thing we get a lot of feedback from. Uh, our lP is about is is how remarkably consistent it is and how differentiated that it is relative to to some of the other funds out there. Your question though, is about portfolio companies. But I think it's important to note that software companies at the end of the day, seventy percent of the cost base is people. Um, so it sounds very like spreadsheet oriented, but where i where I'm going with this is it's all about people. right? You don't have manufacturing plants. Um you have your core competency is organizing people, um, on building IP and customer relationships. And we are so, as I mentioned earlier, management team focused, like we will, we will walk from opportunities where, you know, it just doesn't seem like a, a team, um, where we're, we're a perfect fit for, for working with them. Um, because those teams know their businesses so well, um, right. and they know their end markets so well. And so talent management, I mean, just, that's our pitch, right? That, that's one of the things that enables us to win a lot of deals is we have a history and I think a pretty differentiated history relative to a lot of our peers of, of really working with existing management teams. Um, and it's for all the reasons I just articulated.
0: You've mentioned collaboration is core to your uh, business and indicative, certainly of your lower mid-market roots. So how are you working with your Portco business leaders to attract retain and ensure the right talent is in place to execute the value creation plan?
1: Yeah, you know, it starts with that, that kind of partnering with the team uh, in place. And, and that doesn't mean there there won't be augmentations or, I mean, it changes in some areas, but the, you know, partnering with that kind of core of the team, we've got a model where, you know, our boards, for every investor, there's a, there's a software operator. And, This is somebody, or a set of people, because it's multiple, um, but I'm thinking in particular about our chair people. Uh, They are people who come out of the software space that we've worked with before, who are just really, really good operators. And at the end of the day, every software business has different nuances or challenges that are facing it. But somebody who's a really good software operator um, can can work across all these different types of software businesses, because a lot of it's remarkably consistent. And I'm overgeneralizing. There's nuances if you're talking about a high velocity model versus a heavier sell from the outside enterprise and so on and so forth. But um, these people also work with us on so many different businesses that they, uh, you know, along with our investment team, uh, you know, really have seen a lot as well. So I'd say it starts with you know a good partnership between our software operating partners who are board members and work through the board level along with our investors. We have a really tight cadence. So we meet monthly, um, which is really important. You know, build relationships with people and also to make sure that you're aligned and you can you can move very quickly. That doesn't mean our our uh, interactions are limited to 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 monthly, by the way. I, you know I'm having multiple touch points with. The CEOs of the companies that I work with uh, all the time, and it, it just enables you to move really quickly. You're all aligned. It, it, we we come up with you know multi-year projections, and and everybody's incentivized uh, to hit specific targets. We all talk mm-hmm. the same language. You don't have a bunch of public shareholders all saying different things. And some care long-term, some care quarterly. You know, we 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 line on the same things. We meet consistently. Um, and we provide support where support's really needed because we really focus on a couple of things at a time operationally that we think will yield the most results. And we go, you know, we go a mile wide in those. We don't, we don't do these hundred-day plans that are, you know, a couple miles wide and an inch deep. We we take a little bit of a different approach that's very focused.
0: In addition to collaboration, I know that innovation is very core uh, to your work at Toma Bravo. Uh, There's been no shortage of technological innovation this year, especially with the rise of generative uh, AI and the growth in uh, cloud computing. What are you looking for when assessing or evaluating a potential investment targets, technological capabilities and really innovation strategies?
1: So it's going to start with people. Yep. <laughs> do, you, do you have the right leaders, right? Um, uh, leading product and development. Th- those are often two different individuals at, at software companies, right? A CTO and a CPO or equivalent titles. Um, that's the first thing. I, I mean, the second is you got to look at the company's track record of delivering product innovation. And the last thing you want to do is is buy a company whose innovation days are well behind it. Um. You got to look at, is this business a business who fundamentally understands its customers' needs and then is sitting there and, and introduce, actually introducing new product or product functionality um, that has good uptake and is ultimately being monetized? Um, because... The best thing about a software platform is if you if you have a multi-product software platform, first off, that's great from a sales and marketing efficiency perspective, but they end up becoming really, really sticky. And the way that you got to get there is through new product introduction. And some of that could be inorganic. You can buy your mm-hmm. way into it, but but you know, uh, you get to prevent that from being too kludgy <laughs> and right. uh, and difficult, and stitched together. It, it's got to start with with your your product leaders really understanding their markets and and helping work with development teams to to create things. And and the, and the last thing I would just say is with AI specifically, this is where it gets really interesting. And it depends what part of software you're in. If you're a system of record. Um, you know think about a, a erP system um or or maybe a you know specific type of database. you have access to a lot of information that I, I think it's not lost on us uh, how you can use generative AI to use that as an asset. right but I think also in particular, think about if if you are selling to a technical user in your system of record and you can all of a sudden make that interface really easy so you can go up the food chain to you know, C-suite executive, that's, that's a huge prize. And that's really interesting. And then, you know, when you start to look at aspects of workflow, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different, but, but similarly, you can, um, you can really kind of speed up the adoption in, in usage and in different ways. And it's all about how companies are starting to adopt that and bring them into the way that they build product and think about product experience.
0: Mike, that brings us to the last question of this episode, your outlook for the next 12 months. Uh, our classic crystal ball question, what are your predictions for the software market in the next year? And uh, what are some of the emerging trends you're most excited about?
1: So I'll offer a couple perspectives, but maybe just one thing taking a step back. Um, I think we at Toma Bravo have you know, good intuition and perspective on where things could potentially go. But we're not um, you know, we're not in the business of of of, you know, perfectly forecasting or guessing those things on the economy, right? There's a very few yep. subset of the investment community that even does that, right? Macro yep. hedge funds and and things like that. I say what we do is we 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 focus so heavily on irrespective of of where an economy may go or a valuation market why don't we make sure our businesses are just operated so darn well and are poised to take advantage of a good economic environment because we have everything tooled in? Or, you know, in the case of an environment that's not so great, um, can, can weather the storm and come out even better than it was before. And I think if you look at the great financial crisis, one of the things that and this is really where our, our business, by the way, became so successful in software, mm-hmm. is we took every software platform and we really um, diligently and disciplined, you know, paired it back to um, uh, cash flow levels that would sustain us through. And then it allows us to consolidate spaces in a way that was was unbelievable. So if you look at the amount of equity we invested into each platform heading to the great financial crisis we put that much more enterprise value in we basically doubled the size mm. of these platforms and we we did that by buying at a multiple on average that was about half of our purchase multiple pro forma of course and so you can see that kind of value creation edge it's not you don't have to use a lot of imagination to imagine what that looked like and we have plenty of case studies of that um, during during COVID as well. And I know COVID was followed by zero interest rate and valuations going up. But there, there, were, there were periods of time where, um, you know, we were able to be really advantageous. So I'd say it's tough to be guessing, but like if you have a tried and true way as an investor to make money, you know, so if I'm buying businesses that are great with fantastic management teams... And I'm going to transform them from a business I buy in a revenue multiple to a cash flow um, based business. That's a way you can create a a lot of value. Um, moving to answering your question though, um look, I, I think the demand environment is still a little you it know, seems seems a bit seems a bit soft. Um, but one of the great assets software companies have is you know virtually all recurring with high renewal rates. We've seen renewal rates stay remarkably consistent for most companies. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think the valuations reflect that, but I think that also makes them that much more durable. Um, and they um are well positioned as a result of it. So um I don't I don't have a perfect crystal ball into the future, but I think these software businesses will prove to be pretty darn resilient. Mm-hmm. The best ones will have. You know, retooled their p ls to become more sustainable, and then coming out of it, you know, they'll they'll just let it rip.
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing some Toma Bravo best practices along with your uh, your predictions. Uh, very uh, very convincing. So, uh, Mike, overall, it's certainly a, a very insightful conversation, uh, and you certainly left uh, our listeners with many valuable takeaways. Your firm, Toma Bravo, is a valued relationship to BDO. So uh, I'm going to take the opportunity on behalf of all of my BDO colleagues to say thank you for the uh, continued opportunity to work with your firm.
1: Uh, We appreciate it. And you've you've been a great partner and will continue to be. And so thank you for having me.
0: Yep, my pleasure. To our listeners, thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, This has been BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms.